The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We're taking a break from the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts, although last week, if you were not here, we had a wonderful guest preacher with a very encouraging message on being lights for the Lord Jesus Christ with the gospel from Pastor Bobby Blakey. Wonderful challenge. But usually, or lately we've been going through the book of Acts from the very beginning. We're now in the chapter 8. We'll resume that in the next couple of weeks here uh, in chapter 8. But I did want to stop and pause in light of where we're at in our country here in the world. And being that the Bible, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. As did Jesus. And what does that mean? Well, Scriptures, the Old and New Testament, has something relevant, pertinent, binding, authoritative to say, about no, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter where we live, when we live, where in the world. It's amazing. That's God's word, scripture. And so we are now here in America, we're in a, an election cycle and have been for the first or for the last year. And it's heating up as we're just 30 days away from an election of the president of the United States of America. And so uh, it, it is heating up and a lot of smoke and dialogue and passion and debate and argument and controversy, if you're watching the news at all, as a matter of fact, 24-7 is all about the election, whether it's television, radio, newspapers, blogs, it's like nothing else is going on in the world, it's all about the election, day-to-day opinions from all vantage points flying all over the place. Uh, So I thought it would be appropriate in light of God's sufficient word to speak from some relevant passages and biblical truths to help us as Christians anyway. The message this morning primarily is for believers, those of you who know Jesus Christ personally. Those of you who don't know Jesus Christ, we welcome you to listen in. Listen in to what we think God of the universe has to say about this matter at hand. And in keeping with what one of our elders said a little earlier, uh, Sam Kim, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you, we plead with you to embrace him as Savior for the forgiveness of sin so that you might be adopted spiritually into his family and join this conversation that we're having today, really a Bible study. So the title for today is What the Bible Says About Politics. Uh Uh-oh. Part one. That's a double uh uh-oh. Pastor Cliff, how long could you possibly go on about this? Well, I'm planning just two parts, and I'll explain where we're headed. I have a, Do I have 11 points there? Wow. Pastor Cliff, you're not really going to get through all that. Oh, ye of little faith. So we'll pick up part two next week. Before we look to scriptures together, um, just a couple of thoughts regarding this election cycle right now and the cacophony of noise that's going on and all the debates and conversation in every venue, everywhere you turn, everywhere. That's if you're paying attention, if you're clued into the world or what's going on or watching news at all. Everybody's talking about the election. Everybody's debating about the election. Everybody's giving their opinion uh, just by way of reminder. For us as Christians, if you're, regardless of your news outlet, whether it's on television and a cable channel, say it's CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or They're not all the same. They don't have all the same perspective. But you do as a Christian need to be reminded as you're listening 
thinking that, okay, the person talking probably is not a Christian. Their authority is not the Bible. So their grid perspective and interpretation is biased and could very well be skewed. Could be. If you're a Christian. I think that's how you should think. And if you're listening to the radio, if it's not Christian radio and it's not a reliable Christian, then that's what also you should be thinking. Whether it's NPR or conservative radio, it doesn't matter. If it's not a Christian who's biblically minded, you think, okay, the information I'm getting is, is it objective? Is it honest? Is it truthful? Is it in keeping with biblical truth and principles? That's the main thing that I want to share with you today. And from all the turning the channel and listening on the radio and the blogs that I'm reading and the news outlets I'm reading online, uh, it's not biblical. Uh, there isn't a biblical perspective. There's not a spiritual component from God's point of view. So the goal this morning is to do that very thing, give you a different perspective from the Bible to help our thinking. But if you're a Christian sitting here today, I'm going to surmise that you fall into one of four categories regarding politics in general and this election specifically. So see if you fall into one of these four camps as a Christian and your view of politics and the election. Number one, there is the clueless Christian. They don't have a clue what is going on in the political realm or the election. They don't know who the governor of California is. They don't know who's running for vice president. They don't know who the speaker of the house is. They don't know the latest legislation that's going. They don't know. They're just clueless. They're uninformed. Clueless Christian when it comes to politics. Number two, then there's the careless Christian about politics. You know what? I could care less. Yeah, I heard about that. I could care less. Yeah, I saw that on the news. I could care less. I don't think it matters. Don't waste my time. Kind of a nonchalant, uh, looking down your nose kind of, that's not relevant to me. So you got the clueless Christian who's just not informed, and then the careless Christian, they really don't care. A lot of times they give a spiritual reason that uh, I'm, I'm only interested in spiritual things and what's going on around in the world and the government and politics. It doesn't matter for the Christian. And they build a very strong firewall between all things spiritual and then all things political. So the clueless Christian, the careless Christian, or then number three, there's the crazed Christian. This is the political animal of a Christian. They take politics very seriously. It is not just a habit. It is a way of life. Who gets elected is one of the most important things that will ever happen in the history of the universe. Could change in 30 days. And they read the blogs religiously every day. And they know all the details and what the issues are. And they are passionate about it. They are invested in it emotionally. They comment on it. They read blogs. They write blogs. They respond to blogs. They make comments on Facebook. They pontificate on Facebook. Condemning this candidate or that candidate. And they also condemn those who might call themselves Christians and support that candidate. And they go on and on and on and on. And they're usually, they turn red when you mention the election or politics right in your presence. They begin trembling and shaking. They froth at the mouth. But they are indeed Christians. This is what I call the crazed Christian. So you got the clueless Christian, the careless Christian, and the crazed Christian. I must confess that at any given time in my 30 years of being a Christian, I fell into one of those three categories. I did. 
at one time. I am no longer. I am a recovering, crazed Christian. (laughs) And you too can recover and be rehabilitated. That's my challenge to you this morning. So, so Pastor Cliff, are you saying we shouldn't be a clueless, careless, crazed Christian when it comes to politics? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, according to the Bible. Well, what are we supposed to be? Well, I, I offer you a solution, prospect number four, and that's the conscientious Christian. The conscientious Christian. Well, what's that? Well, a few characters. You're informed. You don't have your head in the sand. God wants you to be informed. We're not just citizens of heaven. Yeah, our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3, but we are also citizens of this world. We have a dual citizenship. We're stewards. So we need to be informed. We need to be aware. We need to be discerning of the issues that really matter. Very important. By the way, that discernment only comes from the Bible. It's not intuitive. It's not common sense. It doesn't come from experience. The conscientious Christian is also the con- a concerned Christian. I am concerned. I'm concerned about the election. I'm concerned about legislation. I'm concerned about what's going on in our world. I'm concerned about politics. I think the Bible warrants that perspective. Uh, I think the conscientious Christian also needs to be proactive. You're not just sitting on your hands as either the clueless or the careless Christian. You are proactive. You're not crazed about it. You're not out of balance and out of sorts about it, but you are proactive in legitimate ways that Scripture warrants. Did, and we'll talk about some of those. And you also primarily, the foundation for all this, and again, this is my main goal and thing this morning, is you need to be thinking about political matters from a biblical worldview. So take your secular humanistic lenses off and then take your Bible and put those on, and that's your lenses by which you're viewing this whole thing. You are viewing politics, government, the election from a biblical point of view. And so that is what I believe uh, points 1 through 11 represent, a biblical worldview or grid by which we need to examine, interpret, think about the election at hand and politics in general. So before I get to the first, these 11 points, just two scriptures to challenge our thinking, guide our thinking. First is out of 1 Timothy 2. I'll just read it. I want to read verse 1 in the first part of uh, verse 2. Listen carefully. Paul says to Christians, that's all of us, first of all, then, I urge or uh, this is a command, Christian, okay? I command, I urge, I exhort as an apostle, is what he means, that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving, four kinds of prayer, present tense, this needs to be an ongoing pattern of life. This is a lifestyle of a Christian. We need to be praying Christians. We need to be praying in different ways, entreating, that's asking for, praying, that's worshiping God in light of all things. Petition is interceding on behalf of other people. And thanksgiving is thanking God continually, no matter what's going on in your life or in the world. And that typifies the prayer of a Christian. It needs to be going on all the time as a lifestyle, present tense. And then it gets specific. Okay, who do we pray for by way of command of the Apostle Paul? Well, that you make these prayers be made on behalf of all people, all of humankind, and specifically, verse 2, for kings. Okay, we don't have a king of the United States of America. But we do have rulers. Paul accommodates for that. Pray for kings and all who are in authority, all political, governmental officials who are in authority. We need to be praying for them. So not only should you know who the governor is, you should be praying for the governor of California. 
and our governors uh, and all those in authority here in our country. Praying for them in an ongoing manner. Questions? When's the last time you prayed for uh, the president, the vice president, the secretary of state? Uh, and just go down the list in terms of how our government is run. The local, do you even know who your local mayor is, the city councilman in your area, the senators who represent you in California, um, the representatives in your area, the nine justices of the Supreme Court of the United States, they have authority. So there's a lot for us to pray. We don't just have a king calling the shots. There is much to pray for. Uh, we'll look a little later about what, exp- well, so what do we pray? What, how do we pray for our government officials? That's where the problem is. That's the rub where Christians don't agree. And even well-known evangelical Christians don't agree. I wrote about this in Grace Notes about six months ago in preparation for the election. It's laid out right there if you want to review it. And I just quoted from well-known evangelical leaders from five, six different vantage points. And they don't necessarily agree about how Christians should focus on this upcoming election. They can't all be right. Scripture has to speak to this. So that was just a good analysis to show you that the most respected evangelical thinkers and pastors and leaders in our country, they're not agreeing on this, Who, what candidates are supporting the issues, etc. One thing we can all agree on, if you're a Christian, you need to be in prayer. So that's my challenge. But how do we pray? What do we pray? What do we pray for our leaders? Do we pray the imprecatory Psalms that God would call down fire from heaven and judge them and destroy them? There are imprecatory Psalms that David prayed that seemed very harsh, that were legitimate prayers that actually got answered at times. Do we pray for their salvation? Do we pray that the legislation is changed? Do we pray that certain leaders are removed, new ones that are in? Do we pray that God puts in Christian leaders? Do we pray? How do we pray? There is no consensus among Christians on that. There is right here in the Bible, in verse 2, so that we may lead a tranquil... See, it's not praying so much for changing them. It's praying for the right perspective in terms of authority, but those prayers should also... So that, in order that, pray in such a way that the results might be that we as Christians may lead a tranquil, peaceful... We're good citizens, honorable citizens, peaceful citizens, law-abiding Citizen and quiet life. Christians in society should not be known for being obnoxious, rabble rousers, troublemakers, throwing eggs at non Christian institutions. Pray that no matter who is in charge, we as Christians, the Church of Jesus Christ, the salt and light of the world, will be tranquil and lead a quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good. And acceptable in the sight of our God. We want to please him. So with that, well, how do we do that? Well, we've got, we've got to think the right way. So again, my goal this morning is to challenge primarily your thinking. I'm not here to tell you who I'm going to vote for. That is a secret. I love that right here in America. You don't have to tell anybody who you're voting for. And I'm not going to do it today. But I am going to look to scriptures and see what I think God clearly says of how Christians should think about uh, the election. So go to Romans chapter 12. This is our lead off verse. And then we'll jump into these 11 principles of how we need to think. When you're watching television, when you're watching CNN news, and when you're listening to NPR radio, when you're listening to whatever radio, when you're reading uh, an NBC, US, uh, MSNBC blog online, you're getting a worldview, you're getting a perspective, you're being told, prompted, coerced, manipulated, deceived sometimes into thinking of, of how to think a certain way. But as Christians, we need to be in charge of our thinking. So 
this is kind of a theme overarching verse. This is Romans 12. And then we're going to be moving right after this. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, in light of all of the salvation gospel truths that were true of you because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, because you believed on him in the first 11 chapters, therefore this is how you should live Christian. And before I get to how you live, this is how you think. See, it starts with how you think. Therefore, I urge you, Christian, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, by the mercies of God, the good blessings of God, salvation in Christ is what he means, to present your bodies, that means your whole life, everything about you, as a living and holy sacrifice to God. Live in such a way, no matter where you are, seven days a week, 24-7, in a way that pleases God. A sacrifice is something you give to worship God, to please God. Do that with your life. Even how you vote, even how you think, even how you talk. acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, says the New American Standard. The literal Greek word here is logicane, logical, logical. Be logical. This has to do with your mind and how you think. Other legitimate translations for spiritual numerate, which is your logical service of worship. It is your reasonable service of worship. It is your sensible. It is your rational it's based on truth. It's primarily how you think is the emphasis Paul is getting at here. You live based on how you think. You can't get wrapped up, swallowed, smothered, deceived by all the political rhetoric and the emotion. It will fog you and me. So Paul is going after the mind here for the Christian. The mind is all important. How we think. We can think Christ's thoughts. Isn't that amazing? That's First Corinthians 2. That is just unbelievable. That's a miracle. But it's only through Scripture. That's how we know God's thoughts because it's in the Bible. Uh, here's, a, here's a caution. First a command and then a caution. The caution is in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Uh, literally, do not be squeezed into the mold of this world. Do not allow yourself. Do not put yourself in positions. Passive. To, do not put yourself in positions to be squeezed into the way this world, this fallen, secular, atheistic, humanistic, transitory world thinks. Don't put yourself into that position. Don't be passive in the process. Don't just sit in front of the television screen watching the news. Oh, yeah, whatever the cable guy says, that's the way I should think. I heard it on the news, therefore it must be true. No. Do not be conformed by this world, but rather be transformed. Metamorphosis. And be proactive about it. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's about how we think. Be transformed. Don't think like the world thinks. In order that you may prove what the will of God is. You can actually prove what the will of God You can prove what the truth is even regarding the election. Because God has revealed his principles in scripture. We can prove it. Uh, I, I'm hoping that these 11 are proving the will of God. This is what God thinks because I'm trying to take it out of the Bible. Hopefully I'm not giving you just my opinion, my slant, my prejudice, my bias. Be a Berean. Search the scriptures. See if these things are so according to scripture as we look at them together. So let's use our minds. Let's ask God for his help. Let's thank God for the Holy Spirit who lives in us and is our teacher and helps us think the thoughts after Christ's thoughts so that we can have the right perspective and be totally unlike the world. The things that I'm saying to you about how to view politics and government may be shocking to some of you. Maybe some of you have never heard this in your life and you're thinking, whoa, that was weird or I don't know if I agree with that. Some of you may be saying a hearty amen. The question is, is it truly what the Bible represents? Let's go ahead and look together what the Bible has to say about politics. Now, these first 11 points you need to know are laying the foundation. These first 11 points are indicatives. 
And they're just stating reality. That's what I'm doing. I am not telling anybody to do anything in these 11 verses. I'm just stating reality according to the Bible. Here's what God said on these 11 topics. It's just undeniable universal truth from God. They are indicatives. Next week, I plan to give the imperatives. Already, I've got like 10 to 15 imperatives. And in Scripture, especially in Paul, imperatives always follow indicatives. An indicative is just a statement of truth that is the basis of thinking and living in light of what God has revealed. Indicatives, stating reality. Imperatives are doing something based on the indicatives that are understood. And that's how Paul writes his epistles. You are this, you are saved, you are forgiven, you are in Christ, you are secure. God loves you. He forgave your sins. It's been propitiated. You have the Spirit living in you. God's given you prayer. You can pray. Pray. Prayer makes a difference. Surround yourself with uh, other believers who will encourage you. And in light of all these indicatives and these spiritual realities, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. That's how we need to proceed as a Christian. So hence, that's why I have 11 indicatives here. So let's go ahead and look at them. Uh, What does the Bible say about politics? Point number one. Uh, Also, I was going to say these 11 principles. I did think of these trying to summarize them in light of the election season here in america but because they are timeless biblical principles i think these would be true in any culture any country today right now if i was asked to go to ukraine which i've been invited before and speak to the christians there i could preach this exact same 11 point message has nothing to do with an american election i could go to honduras and do the same thing which where i was recently go to mexico doesn't matter this is what the Bible says. Also, I could do this. I could preach these same 11 truths just the way they are 20 years from now. I would argue because these are timeless, transcendent, biblical principles. Hence, a solid, unchanging foundation by which we think, view things, make decisions. So let's go ahead and look at it together. Uh, and these may not be exhaustive, but I tried to be exhaustive in terms of the principles, in terms of laying the foundation, trying to make the parameter or the border complete so that you as a christian are on the inside of this completed border so that no matter what direction you go what issue comes up you have a biblical answer because the border the perimeter is secured with biblical truth that's what i was trying to get at here i did want to be comprehensive and leave no stone unturned in terms of issues we need to think about when it comes to politics and the election number one uh, we live in a fallen and cursed world genesis five twenty nine. So right after Adam and Eve sinned, Adam and Eve were real people. Uh, the world, Adam and Eve were created sinless. The world was created sinless without defect. It was perfect. It was very good when God was done. And then God created the last, the, on the last day, two humans, Adam and Eve. And they were sinless at the time. And then they disobeyed a known command of God. And then they were punished by God. And one of the punishments was that God cursed the earth. And that's Genesis 5.29. God cursed the earth. He cursed the earth. That's why we have hurricanes like we've had in Florida. This week, I heard several times on the television and on radio, these hurricanes are happening as a result of global warming. No, no, it's not. Or CO2. No, no, not CO2. CO2 is a good thing. Plants live on CO2. Well, why do we have hurricanes? By the way, we've been having hurricanes for thousands of years. Last time there was an earthquake in California, same thing. Oh, this, these earthquakes are happening because of global warming. No, it's not because of global warming. 
It's because we live in a cursed earth. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25, there will be earthquakes and they're going to get worse as time goes on. It's a result of the curse. There have been earthquakes ever since Genesis chapter 3, hurricanes since Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Paul is explicit about that in Romans 8, 18 through 23, where he says that God cursed the earth. God subjected this cursed earth to futility and a curse in nature. That's why bad things happen. That's why natural disasters happen. We live in a cursed earth. It is not a political issue. Natural disasters. We can't control the weather. Jesus said that in John 3. You can't control the weather. So creation was subjected to futility as a result. To remind us, we live in a cursed world as a result of sin. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. God is in charge. He is the judge. He is the creator. He is the one that subjected this world to futility. That's what Romans 8 says. And the reason I bring this point up is because uh, this is absolutely essential and basic, but I'm not going to assume that everybody understands this and thinks this kind of paradigm. Boy, look at the candidates we got. We don't have very good candidates. Well, yeah, because uh, we live in a cursed world with fallen people. We're never going to have a perfect candidate. That ain't going to happen. Not in this. Oh, yeah, we will have a perfect candidate for our government. And by the way, in Revelation 19, it is going to be exciting. He's not running against anybody. Yeah, actually, there's a, another candidate, Satan, I think. And Jesus uh, comes down and he squashes Satan and kills all of his enemies. And then he reigns as the king for a thousand. That's going to be awesome. But anyway, sidetrack. But in the meantime, we live in a cursed world. Make sure that is a part of your frame of mind as you're thinking about these political issues. Uh, number two, the world is getting worse. The world is getting worse year by year. I want to do, I do want to read from, uh, 2 Timothy 3 1, a couple of verses there. The world is getting, there are some people that think the world is getting better, just so you know. By the way, politicians, at least when they're candidating and traveling they make you think the world is getting better how is the world going to get better by electing me i'll give you this promise and i'll give you this promise i'll give you a free phone if you elect me i will give you now this is what we're hearing i will give you free college education isn't that awesome if you elect me i'm going to give you free health care if you elect me i'm going to give you this if you elect me i'm going to eradicate this problem if you elect me i'm going to reduce crime if you elect me that's what politicians do sadly which is reminiscent of Jeremiah chapter 6, 2,500 years ago, when God was rebuking Israel and their leaders, including their political leaders, exposing their fraud regarding this very issue. Here's what God said in Jeremiah before I get to Timothy. They have, the political leaders of Israel have healed the brokenness of my people. So the social troubles they were having. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially. It was shallow. It didn't work. Well, how were they doing it? Well, they were saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Politicians for centuries have been promising utopia. If you vote for me, you will have utopia. I will solve all your problems. I will give you a car. I will give you a house. I will give you this. I will give you free food. You will have no problems. That's the promise of you. The world will get better if you elect me. That's utopia. That ain't going to happen in a cursed earth in this lifetime until Jesus comes again. It is a lie. And what's kind of interesting, if you look at the history of the world, the history of empires, the history of civilizations, those who made the greatest, most grandiose promises of utopia were always socialist dictators. And it's going on today. You vote for me, put me in charge, I will do this for you. Peace, peace, when God says there is no peace. Very important. But here's what Paul said in Timothy through the Holy Spirit. He spoke as an apostle. It is true. It is binding. He made a prophecy. He's looking down at time through the Holy Spirit. Uh, 
and the passage I put there, Second Timothy chapter three. Paul says this to believers. Pertinent for us, but realize this: that in the last days, in the last days, in the last, when are the when are the last days? We are living in the last days. As a matter of fact, Paul was living in the last days, and the further you go in time, is closer and closer, and more and more of the last days. These are the last days of the last days from a biblical point of view. Realize this: later on, as time goes on, in the last days, life is not getting better. Says Paul. As a matter of fact, in the last days, difficult times will come. I think the King James says perilous. Times will come. Really? While you do a study of history, objectively, that's what I see. We are living in perilous times right now. In the last days, difficult times will come. This is what characterizes that kind of a society. Men will be lovers of self. I think um, the average American person could be the poster child of that statement. People will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, boastful. Arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Paul isn't just throwing out words. The Holy Spirit is being very specific about these traits that will characterize this kind of a society. This is America and many nations right now. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness. See, we have religion, right? 90% of Americans say they're religious or Christian. You, wow. That's a, no, it's not exciting. That is a veneer that is false. And that's true of most people on planet Earth say they're religious. They have a form of a religion saying they love God. A form of godliness, uh, although they deny its true power. The last days. Then Paul goes on. Look at this. Verse 13, he gets specific. Evil men and imposters, wicked people who are influential will proceed from bad to worse. People are going to get worse and worse as time goes on. This is clear from Scripture. This is clear from Revelation. If you read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, it is about the future, and it just gets really worse. It gets as bad as it can get. That's where this world is headed. That's where history is going. It's not going to get better. And there, there have been Christian theologians over the years who've written and said just the opposite. Life is going to get better. The church is going to take over the world. Uh, we're going to take over the government. We're going to take over educational institutions. We're going to take over the economic issues of society. We're going to make everything better. We're going to eradicate poverty. This has been a theme of a sect of Christianity for ages, centuries, actually. The world is going to get better. And the Bible says, no, the world is getting worse. So keep in mind that the reason I bring that up is because just... Some people think that if they elect the right person or the right people to government, that's going to fix all the problems. That is not true. I remember the first election that I was very involved and in tune with was when uh, it was Jimmy Carter got elected the first time. Our family was very political, not a Christian home, but very political. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and all those presidents since then, it's been 40-plus years. Okay, so government's supposed to solve all the problems? Look around. Has the government solved all the problems? Has the United States government and all of its wisdom and all of its money allocated and all that stuff, has it eradicated poverty? Has it eradicated violent crime? Has it eradicated debt? No, just the opposite is true. Has it eradicated prejudice and hatred of one another? Has it eradicated corruption in government, illiteracy, all the ills of society? Have Christians flexing their muscle, being involved in politics, been able to eradicate abortion in our country after over three-plus decades and the utter moral decline of our country? No. It's getting worse. Number three. That's bad news, by the way. There's good news. This sermon ends on good news. Number three. We are in the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24. 
I want to read this verse because this, this is probably, out of these 11, probably one of the most important in terms of its implications for us as we think about government, who we're going to elect, what kind of changes can possibly be made, even the candidate that we're looking for. This is one thing I keep hearing from Christians. Oh, this candidate, they're not really like a Christian. This candidate's not really Christian. This candidate doesn't have very many Christian virtues. This candidate violates all these biblical Christian virtues. Well, to be the president of the United States, you don't have to be a Christian. It's right there in the Constitution of the United States. You have to be a citizen of America and, and hopefully not be convicted of crime, high crimes and dis- misdemeanors, and you've got to be 35 years old and older, whatever. That's it. It doesn't matter what religion you are. You can be an atheist. You can be a secularist. You can be a humanist. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are. That's never been the issue. The Bible, Jesus, the gospel is not mentioned in the Declaration of Independence. The Bible, Jesus, the gospel not mentioned in the Constitution of the United States. It is strictly a secular document. Yes, influenced by many people including a Judeo-Christian ethic, but probably more influenced by John Locke, the Enlightenment liberal theologian slash rationalist. Has his fingerprints on it more than the Bible. So we are in the times of the Gentiles. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, there was only one theocracy in the history of the world, and that was when God made Israel a theocracy. God was the king. He gave a constitution, it's called the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, and that's how they were to conduct themselves. There has only been one theocracy in the history of the world that was legitimate, and that was it, the theocracy of Israel. God was doing his part, the people didn't do their part. You know why theocracies don't work? Because the people will never do their part. Human beings who are fallen will never hold up their end. They will always compromise, it will always fall apart. That's what happened. So God judged Israel and said, you know what, and he ended the theocracy. There's a debate about when it ended. Definitely started to be ended with the attack of the Assyrians in 722 B.C., but probably finalized in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan, conquered Jerusalem and Judea, took them all away as slaves, destroyed the temple. And from that point on, we have been under not a theocracy of Almighty God. We have been, the entire world has been under the blanket, the umbrella of the times of the Gentiles. The Gentiles is a synonym for the word nations. All throughout the Bible, those are unbelieving peoples. Those are unbelieving people groups. Those are godless civilizations. That's what the word means. And from now on, don't you realize, Jesus said, we are now under the times of the Gentiles. There is no theocracy. Jesus is not literally reigning as king on the throne, as king of planet Earth, literally. That's in the future. It ain't happening now. So looking at his words in Luke 21, verse 24, uh, woe to those who are pregnant in the times of the end of the age, the time leading up to the tribulation. That will be a literal period. It is yet future. This hasn't happened yet. Verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led. These are believers, believing Jews at a minimum, and they will be led captive into all the nations, unbelieving nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And that's been true of Jerusalem ever since the time of Jesus. Jerusalem, the Jews, the Jewish religion has been trampled underfoot. Well, how long is this going to last? Well, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So uh, we are living under the times of the Gentiles. That means in our current 196 nations that we have on planet Earth, They are, for the most part, they are ruled under the rubric of the times of the Gentiles. There is no theocracy and not in in any one of those 196 countries, including the United States. 
and Gentile nations. They will rule with a rod of iron, with their throat on the neck of the people in one form or another, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, when is the, when is the time of the Gentiles? I think that refers to when all of the Gentiles that God desires to be saved will be saved, and that is still yet future, Romans chapter 11. So right now, we are in the times of the Gentiles, and who you expect to be president, don't expect it to be a theocracy because it's not designed to be that way, either from the United States' point of view or from God's point of view. And the illustration I use is like my mechanic. I like my mechanic. I've had him for 10 years. He's honest, at least with me. He's not a Christian. He has a foul mouth. He's a great mechanic, and he gives me a lot of good deals on my car, and he's just honest with me and does a great job. He does great work. I could go to a Christian mechanic. I can't find one right now close enough in my area that has a good price, and there's no guarantee they're going to be able to fix my car better than this guy, the pagan who can fix my car. Well, that's very similar to the role of President of the United States. It is not a Christian position. There are not Christian biblical qualifications to be the president. Kind of like, who do you expect to do your brain surgery? Are you looking for a spirit-filled Christian? No, I want the best surgeon who's going to give me the best hope. So that would be very helpful. That And that does fall under the rubric of viewing governments on planet Earth today and since 586 B.C. as we are living in the times of the Gentiles. The church is not going to usher in political utopia and euphoria. That ain't going to happen. Jesus will usher it in when he comes and lands on the earth. Okay, number four. Uh, governments are transitory. Governments don't last. Daniel 2.21, 4.17 says that God raises up governments and puts them aside. Like he's playing with tinker toys or Legos. He is in charge. He's been that way all throughout history. Someone did a study that was informative and throughout they studied history as a historian, not a Christian, they came up with 74 distinct civilizations that have made up Ameri or world history. And they had a definition of civilization, a distinct autonomous civilization. America would qualify. We've been around for 238 years. We're one of these 74 historic civilizations. And he noted two things. Uh, they go through a progression or a cycle from beginning to end. It's very identifiable, seven stages every country civilization goes through. And the average age that every civilization from beginning until now, at the average of every nation or civilization or empire is 349 years. That's it. Some lasted 30, some lasted 70, some 502. America, we're on 238. And there are seven stages that this can be objectively analyzed scientifically in history. Where's America? Well, what are the seven stages? This is important. Uh, it's helpful. Uh, Seven stages they came up. Well, when a nation begins their empire, there's the age of outburst or the pioneering stage. We already had that in America. That's how we started. Then there's number two is the stage of conquest or expansion. We spread out, and that's what we did. We took all of this land, tried to take some other lands beyond where we are currently today. So there's the age of outburst, the age of conquest, and then there's the age of commerce where you, okay, I got enough land now. I'm going to stop going this way and out. Now I'm going to build up. I'm going to build my tower. I'm going to build my walls. I'm going to build my house. I'm going to build my mansion. I'm going to build my stuff. Well, America did that. So the age of outburst, the age of conquest, the age of commerce, and then there's the age of affluence. I'm building all this stuff. I've amassed all this stuff, and now I got what I wanted. And not really because I want more. But anyway, I've got affluence, and that's where America has reached from its agrarian society to an age of 
total affluence. And after the age of affluence comes the age of intellect, which is the age of arrogance, pride, because we look down our nose at everybody else who doesn't do it as well as we do because we are the best nation on planet Earth. Every one of these empires got to that point. Also, during the age of intellect at that point where they become, they establish uh, institutions, usually governmental higher education institutions, colleges, universities, where they come up with curriculum and they indoctrinate the masses and the people with their thoughts. And usually at that point in history, their thoughts and what they're indoctrinating with is the very thing that undermines how that nation was founded. It's amazing. It's ironic. History repeats itself. Well, we've gone through all these stages here in America, the age of outburst, the age of conquest, the age of commerce, the age of affluence, the age of intellect, education, arrogance. And then number six is the age of decadence. Living high on the hog. Decadence. Sexual immorality. It exploded in the 1960s, if you're not aware. Didn't start in the 1960s, but exploded and became commonplace in the 1960s. And has mushroomed since. Well, what's the last one? Number seven is decline and collapse. So, Pastor Cliff, do you think America is in the state of decline and collapse? Or decline and collapse? Yeah, I, I actually I do. Just based on this study, but God is sovereign. He's in charge. He does whatever he wants. There have been revivals in other countries and in American history, and there are always a spiritual revival with God's word going out. And the word of God, the gospel, changes the hearts of people. And when you change the hearts of people, that's real change. From God's point of view. So, number four, governments are transitory. They last as long as God decrees. Uh, Number five, God established all governments and rulers. God established all governments and rulers. Uh, Some Christians read this verse and it, it challenges them. It startles them. They find it hard to get their thoughts around this and its implications. What in the world? Especially if they've never heard it. Romans 13, verse 1. Paul says, every person is to be in subjection. Every Christian, especially, but all of society, even unbelievers, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. That is a biblical command. Every single one of us is a good Christian. We need to submit to authority in the government. I need to submit to the policeman. I need to submit to the speed limit. I need to submit to the city council who said, now I need to move my car on Tuesdays between... 9 o'clock and 11, so the street can be cleaned? How inconvenient. Okay. I will submit. I have no choice. You'll tow my car anyway. We need to submit to the government of California and the governor and all these new laws and the raising of taxes. And We need to submit to... And you just keep going on up in the government. Now, we've already seen in the book of Acts, we don't submit all the time. We submit primarily, as a rule of thumb, submit to everything. In terms of those in authority. The exception is when whoever's in authority is violating the word of God. It's really that simple. Shall we obey you or God's word? For the Christian, we are going to obey God's word. I am not going to kill a baby that is in the womb. I'm not going to say that homosexual marriage is marriage. It's not. Marriage is what God has ordained between man and woman. It's in Genesis 2. It's all over the Bible. But for the most part, we need to submit to the authority. We don't hate cops. We respect cops. We pray for cops. We pray for the military. For why, Paul? Why do we submit to governing authority? Because there is no authority that exists except from God. Wow, really? 
And those which exist are established by God. And then immediately the question is, well, what about the bad ones? What about the sour ones? What about the compromised dictator? Do you know he got in that place because God put him there? You mean God put Hitler in place? God put Hitler in place. Yes. Romans 9, verse 17. Pharaoh, in the days of Moses, was worse than Hitler. And Romans 9, 11, it is clear. God said, you know what, Moses? I Almighty God, I raised up Pharaoh for my purposes. God did not ordain the evil of Hitler. In other words, he didn't approve of it. He didn't inspire Hitler to do it. This is just simply talking about rising to power. God has established all authority that exists. So whoever the president, I will guarantee you this from a biblical point of view, whoever gets elected in 30 days, God ordained that. That authority exists by the decree of Almighty God. Well, don't we have a part? Yeah, we do. People can vote here in America. That's a privilege most countries throughout history never had. Or you can actually say, well, I don't, I don't like this king anymore. Let's vote. They didn't have that privilege. We do. It's an amazing stewardship responsibility that we have. Therefore, whoever resists a, a governmental political authorities has a, that are in place has opposed the ordinance of God. That doesn't mean I have to approve everything. Say somebody gets elected, I don't like what they're doing. They're pro-sin, pro-immorality, pro-this. No, let's let grown men go into the, the girl's bathroom and make a law to decree it and fine you and throw you in jail if you resist it. Fine, I'll go to jail. Violates a basic biblical command. Otherwise, but I am going to submit generally for the most part to authority. Um, but that doesn't mean we necessarily approve of everything they're doing there are times where like john the baptist the prophet of god who submitted to authority he did he lived his life submitting to established corrupt warped perverted political leaders his entire john the baptist did except one time in the gospels the political leader named herod had a, a life rife with sexual compromise and immorality doing it in the name of God, calling himself a Jew and a believer in the Old Testament, and then he commits this gross, blatant, open immorality. Nobody's saying anything. They fear Herod, Antipas, and then John the Baptist didn't fear. He spoke up for God, and he publicly pointed his finger in the face of Herod and called him an adulterer. So he did speak up against a political authority. He was warned to do so. He spoke as a prophet of God to do so because the political authority was violating a higher law, the law of God. And it cost John the Baptist his life. It cost him his head. And throughout history, 2,000 years of the church, that happens time and time again where Christians do stand up to immorality when they should and they give their life as a result. But God has established all governments and rulers. Number six, uh, there is only one Christian nation. First Peter 2 9. Just simply, I put it down there for you. Paul's talking to Christians. He says, You Christians are a holy nation. You're a holy nation. People of God. It's a spiritual nation. So there are 196 nations currently right now on planet Earth. They are all Gentile. They are all pagan. They're not theocracies. They're not the church. They're not Christian. They're the nations. That's Acts 17. The nations. God created the nations. The real nation, the real homogeneous identity of spiritual people who are like-minded, bonded in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and Almighty God and the Bible is our authority, is the church currently. 
That is the only nation. It's right there in the Bible. It used to be the theocracy of Israel before its demise. Now it is the church. One nation. And we need to live and think accordingly. So it's not, I need to, ooh, we need to elect and fight so we can preserve Americanism and our American nation. Because this is paradise on earth. That's ethnocentric. That is myopic. That is unbiblical thinking. And boy, when you get out in the world more and you got your mission, I want to preach the Bible, teach the Bible, and you get opportunities to go around the world. And I mean, some of my friends, I've been friends with guys 25 years who have lived for 25 plus years in Albania. That's their home. They've born and raised. They raised all their kids there in Albania. Or same thing in Ukraine. Three of my good friends born and raised all their kids. They've been there for 25 years in Ukraine. They're not ethnocentric about America. They, they see the world. They're global Christians. That's how they think. I'm a part of the family of God and the nation of the church, spiritually speaking. Not the religion of Thomas Jefferson or America. Some Christians say, America is the greatest nation in the history of the earth. I disagree. I disagreed the first time violently when I first heard that 30 years ago. America is not the greatest nation in the history of the earth. Israel is. That is clear from Scripture. And it will be preserved by God in the future as well, regathered before Almighty God in terms of an earthly nation. So we can't be ethnocentric. Only one nation, that's the church today. And, every, and if you're a Christian, you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere in the country, and when you meet it, you can meet a Christian in India you've never met before, and if they're a believer and you're a believer, you just instantly have a kindred spirit because you have the same Savior and the same Father. It's amazing. And that kind of relationship, that's closer than blood or national ties. And only a Christian can really understand that and experience that. Uh, so there's only one Christian nation that is the church. Number seven, there are only two races that matter, uh, the chosen race and the lost race. Uh, Peter says in that same passage that you Christians, you're a chosen race. You're a race of people. There's homogeneity about you. There's a distinction about you. There's a relationship that you have uh, that ties you back to the Father. You're one race. You're a race of people. You're God's people. You're a priesthood of believers. That's the race, the saved race. Everybody else that doesn't know Jesus Christ, they're a part of the lost race. And our mission is to give them the gospel, pray for them, and see them get saved so they, the lost race can join the saved race. Only two races, really, that matter on planet Earth. Skin color really has nothing to do with race. Divides should not be made based on skin color. In heaven, in the future, in glory, before the throne of God, forever, there will be people from all nations, all colors, all languages, worshiping the same God as one people. Being racially prejudiced is incredibly superficial, myopic, totally unbiblical. doesn't even matter. We have many rep races, skin color represented in this church, and that's the way it should be as a part of the body of Christ. Uh, when I look at another Christian, really, I am not even conscious of their skin color. Whether they're from India, Korea, China, America, Mexico, England, whatever. For a Christian, that doesn't even matter. And yet I say that because in politics, it's all you hear. The candidates are arguing, you're a racist. No, you're a racist. Oh, I'm for these people. I'm for the black person. I'm for the white person. I'm for the this. For a Christian, we, we don't even think that way. That's shallow. That's not appreciating every human being made in the image of God. Two matters, two races that matter. Number eight, uh, our problems are not political but spiritual. Ephesians six twelve. We don't fight against flesh and blood. Your fellow human is not your enemy. If you consider him your enemy, pray for him anyway and do good to him. That's Matthew 5 and Romans 12. And Bobby, Pastor Bobby reminded us of this beautifully last week. 
those that are not saved, those that are different from you. They're not the problem. The lack of those spreading the gospel is the problem. Satan is the problem. Sin is the problem. The unsaved person is not the problem. Do we love people? Who are we fighting against? It's a spiritual battle. That's what matters. That's where our priority needs to be. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. And it is satanically driven. Satan is real. Demons are real. You forget that, you're going to lose focus. His lies, his false teaching, hell-bent on destroying people. Pray against the devil every single day. That's Jesus, Matthew 6. Number nine, Jesus and the early church were not distracted by politics. They weren't. You look at the ministry of Jesus in the gospel. He didn't talk about the government. His government was more corrupt than our government. They had less rights than we do. And you don't hear Paul and Jesus talking about the government, politics, what we're going to do, the moral majority, what we're going to do. We've got to do this legislation, that legislation. It's okay to, for, to think about legislation. But they weren't preoccupied with that. Their, their mission was clear. Spiritual mission. We got the Great Commission. We got the gospel. We got the true answer. We got what matters. We got what's going to last eternally. Let's stay focused. Let's not get distracted. Jesus said in John, when he finally did get distracted by a politician who had him arrested unjustly, Jesus didn't plead his rights. Hey, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. Let me go. I want my lawyer. He didn't do that. Like a sheep led to the slaughter, complied, submitted to God's will. He did talk to Pilate eventually, who worked for the Roman government, and he just said, you know what? My kingdom is not of this world. Spiritual reality is the priority. What makes... What goes on in the world is important, but the priority is the spiritual realm and how it impacts our world. We should remember that. Number 10, uh, our purpose in life is clear. We've been going that in the book of Acts. What is our purpose? We are to be purpose-driven. The purpose that Jesus gave us from his word, the Great Commission, living for him, representing him if we're a Christian. Be his witnesses wherever we go. Plant the seed, water the seed, pray for the seed. Live as light, live as salt, trust God. While everything's just going crazy all around us. He is the stable one. He is the rock. He is the foundation. He gives stability. We don't have to live in fear and anxiety about the future and what's going to happen. God is in charge. He holds the whole world literally in the palm of his hand. God works all things together for good. For those who know and love him. If you're a Christian, you can live day by day with that promise. God knows what he's doing. He's on the throne. He's in charge. This is the way it's supposed to be. This is amazing. And we get to... Go along with the Father who's totally in charge. In the meantime, occupy until he comes. That's what Jesus said. Occupy until I come. Occupy until I come. He said that just before he left. He said that to his disciples. Occupy before I come. Occupy until I... What does that mean? Be busy doing the right thing, God's thing, the Great Commission, until I return to the earth. That is a mandate for the Christian. And then number 11. This is comforting. We know where history is going. That's why I called it his story. History isn't just random events aimlessly happening with no purpose, no cause, nobody in charge as a result of evolution. No. History is specific. It has a definitive beginning by Almighty God with a definitive purpose planned in eternity past. It's going a specific course. Much of that has already been outlined in the Bible. The Bible, the New Testament tells us where the rest of it is specifically going, how it culminates. It ends with the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the sky so the whole world can see him in glory in a resurrected body is the God-man, perfect, King of kings, Lord of lords, lands in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives 
and reigns for 1,000 years as King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you are a Christian today, we will co-reign with him. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? Now I am ready for lunch. I am not exaggerating. That's why I put Revelation 19. That's chapter 19 and chapter 20. Revelation 5.10 says that the saints will rule on the earth. And then it should say Daniel 7. I put a wrong verse there. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says the same thing. That's how it all ends. That is how it all ends. Everybody else that says anything different is speaking in utter ignorance and darkness. With that, we can take total comfort and have confidence in God and his word. And let's go to the Father and pray. Father, we do thank you for this day. What what a blessing it is for us as believers always to take a break from the busyness of life, sometimes the trials and worries of life, to be with fellow believers, for fellowship, for praying with one another, being encouraged, hearing your word, singing to you. God, you know, as finite and fallen people, we need that. We need to be filled up. We need to be encouraged. Thank you for allowing us to do that this day. Again, thank you for the clarity of your word, the scripture, where you've laid out an accurate, literal interpretation of life, what's going on in the world right now, and what lies ahead in the future. We thank you for it. We pray all these things that you might be glorified in us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.